to begin uh, with, uh, with a question as we continue in this uh, Lenten series, um, a costly journey, considering what is, what are, what is it that discipleship um, costs us? What are some of those, those things that we can name? Um, and, and that is just a simple question. What, what is your faith worth to you? What is your faith worth to you? Now, if you think about just kind of everyday life, I mean, think about the, the pandemic, uh, the, the two years, a couple years that we all walked through um, together. We did a lot of time evaluating the worth of things in our lives, right? Some of, uh, some of you... Um, added worth to things that you have by, you know, you, you're tired of staring at the four walls that you have and you think now is the perfect time for me to remodel my home. Um, you evaluated the worth and you thought, I want to I add some worth to this. Or maybe you evaluated some things and, and said, this, this, I'm not really getting the return on this that I once did or that I'd hoped. And so in evaluating the worth of this thing in my life, I'm I'm willing to prune it. I'm willing to, to let it go. You know, you, I mean, we're a family of seven and not a whole lot of square feet. And, and so we did some evaluating and said, we can't get rid of people. And so we probably need to get rid of some things. Um, and, and that was part of evaluating the worth of things in our lives. And that's how we tend to evaluate worth. We, tend, we do that with, with vehicles. We do that with homes. We do it with jobs. We do it with places that we live. We even do that with relationships sometimes. What is this worth to me? Is, is it um, am, am, I, am I getting from it what I, um, what I feel like I ought to? And that, that is how we tend to evaluate worth, right? But if we're not careful, in evaluating our faith that way, in evaluating the worth of our faith as what, what is the return I am getting on this, what is it that I am receiving as a result of saying that I believe in Jesus or that I've said yes to Jesus at some point in my life, it, it, is my faith giving me the return that I, that I feel like it should give me? which can be kind of a dangerous way to evaluate your faith. Because if you think about it in, in the, the grand like, scope of your life, and if we consider the, the entire arc of Scripture, there, there is no greater thing that you can be given than what has already been given to you in the, the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. There, there's, there's nothing more that you, that you can receive. Like Jesus can't add anything of worth to that which is already priceless. But if we evaluate our, our faith in that manner, then, then we, if we're not careful, we wind up in this place where we begin to think, you know what, I, God's not coming through for me the way that I think that God should. God's not answering this prayer the way that I think God should answer this prayer. God is not giving me this thing or giving me this relationship or giving me this promotion or giving, whatever it may be, God is, God is not coming through for me the way that, that I think that God should, and, and therefore, what is my faith worth? What is this, what is, what is the point of this even? But rather than evaluating our faith in that manner, rather than asking of it, what is it, what am I receiving for my faith, probably a healthier way for us to evaluate our faith and evaluate the worth of our faith is instead of asking, what is it that, that my faith, am, I'm gaining from my faith? The, the best way for you to evaluate what your faith is worth is to say, what is it costing me? Not what am I gaining from it, but what is my faith costing me? 
I listened to a, a sermon this week. It was actually one that, that Ed um, shared with me, and I love, that's one of the things I love about the fact that we, we, we preach together. Like, there's not one of us preaching in both spaces, that we're, um, we're both um, opening the Word together, and we get to share kind of midweek, hey, what, what do you feel like God's stirring in your heart? What, is, what are you hearing from this? What is God teaching you? And, and just the gift of collaboration. And, and um, so one of the things that Ed shared with me was a, was a sermon um, by a pastor from, uh, from Pakistan, and, and, and he's, he's talking about these pastors that he has trained. And, and he asked this, I mean, he, I didn't come up with this, he asked this question, he, you know, what is your faith worth to you? And, and maybe evaluating it by the, the cost. And, and he, he, you know, talked about the, the church in the West or the church in America versus some of these pastors that he's trained in other parts of the world who were willing to walk, walk, for three days in order to attend a pastor's conference or in order to, to be in the, the, the company of other pastors and to be able to train, uh, be trained in how to, how to preach, how to, um, you know, how, how to be effectively be a pastor. And, and I just think like how quickly we feel like things that, that maybe we are being asked to do as followers of Christ, how quickly those things become inconveniences for us because we, we suffer from this hurry sickness that exists in the world. Like if somebody, if, and, and we're probably better about it here in the high country than in some places, but, but you know, how long does it take before someone doesn't go when the light is green before you, you begin to feel like your anxiety or your frustration with that person in front of you start to rise? We have, we have the green light near our house from old 421 turning left onto the four lane. If people don't regularly go through that light, then the, the light changes. Like people need to keep going because the, the line of traffic that's backed all the way up beyond tractor supply, when, when the girls and I pull up to it in the morning, we're like, all right, team, we're all in this together. Everybody get off your phones, pay attention to the light. If the car in front of you goes, everybody goes. If we all go, we all make it through. Granted, it's generally my fault that we're running a little bit late and, and depending on the people in front of us to get through the light. But, but how, how long does it take before we just become frustrated? Do we approach our faith in the same way or are we willing to ask the question, not what am I getting from my faith, but what does it cost me? What am I willing to give up as a follower of Jesus? That's the entirety of our, of our series are we, as Brennan Manning said, are we, are we content to kind of stay in the sweetness of Bethlehem and, and, and the, the no cost of the, the you know, season of Jesus' life uh, that he spent in Nazareth? Or, or are we willing, are we willing, because there's no discipleship without the cross, are we willing to travel to the place where Jesus wrestles and wrestle with him in Gethsemane? Are we willing to travel with him to the suffering of the cross as followers of Christ. This is, th that, that lays the foundation for everything that we're considering. Let's, uh, this morning, look at our, our passage, and uh, we'll still be in Luke chapter 10 as we were last week, and last week we considered the fact that discipleship may cost us, because if we don't allow Scripture to define for us what the cost of discipleship is, what discipleship and, and a life spent following Jesus um, is, is meant to or may cost us based both on the things that Jesus teaches and also on the examples of those who have gone before us. If we don't allow Scripture to define that, then we will define that for ourselves, and, and we define it relative to the amount of comfort that we would like to have in our lives, right? Or we define it relative to the person next to us and say, well, I'm giving more than that person, therefore I am probably a more faithful disciple of Jesus than that person is. 
But we have to allow Scripture, this, this truth that is outside of us and fixed, to be the thing that defines for us what discipleship looks like. So we looked last week at um, the, the fact that, that discipleship may cost us our comfort in looking at the story of the, the Good Samaritan. Uh, this week we're going to consider the fact that discipleship might just cost us our busyness, not our business. It might cost you your business, but our busyness. If you would, in honor of the reading of God's word, uh, Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 38. We'll just go to the end of the chapter here. Luke records these words. He says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So Luke begins this passage as Jesus and his disciples were on their way. Uh, when we began this series, we, we talked about the fact that we would be in um, the journey narrative of Jesus. We, we began with John uh, 9, 51, where we read that Jesus' eyes were set resolutely toward Jerusalem, that Jesus is now on the journey toward Jerusalem in earnest, knowing that the cross is on the horizon, his suffering is on the horizon, and Jesus' eyes are fixed on the destination. He is unwavering in his commitment um, to the will of the Father and to the reason for which he came um, and, and allowed himself to be born in, into this, this world. Um, he is fixed on that. And so we, the way that, that Luke writes this is everything that happens from that moment forward, Jesus is, in the, he is nearing Jerusalem. He is in the process. And when Jesus teaches um, along the way, Jesus interacts along the way. And, and, and so this is where we are in this this journey uh, narrative that Luke captures for us. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. Now, we know um, from John's gospel, uh, Martha is, is familiar uh, to Jesus. Martha and Mary, the sisters, and their brother, Lazarus. Lazarus of John 11, Lazarus that was raised from the dead, Lazarus who was in the tomb for four days when Jesus goes and says, hey, let's roll that stone out of the way. Jesus, um, Lazarus is dead, dead. Like he's not kind of dead, he's very dead. We probably shouldn't move the, the stone, move the stone out of the way and Jesus calls, Lazarus, come out. There is, there is love in Jesus' heart for this family, for these sisters and, and brother. And we could say, well, I mean, doesn't Jesus love everybody? Well, yes. But there is a, there is a unique relationship that Jesus has with this, this family. So Martha um, welcomes Jesus into, into their home. Remember where we began a few weeks ago when, when uh, Jesus... Is, is traveling along and, and a man comes up to him and says, hey, I'll, I will follow you wherever you go. Like, I mean, that, what, 
enthusiasm. Like that, I would think that for Jesus, that would be the kind of enthusiasm that he would want for someone uh, who, who is following. Hey, wherever you go, I'm your guy. I will follow you wherever you go. And, and the way that Jesus answers that is to say, um, hey, foxes have dens. They have places where they can sleep. The Son of Man does not. Like, I, I, are you willing, are you really willing um, to follow me because it's going to cost you? Like, the comforts that you have now, the life that you know now, it's not going to look the same way. And, and here we see a perfect example. Jesus and his disciples relied on the hospitality of others, relied on the generosity of others, relied on others to welcome them um, into their homes and to feed them and to provide a place for them to rest, provide a place sometimes for them to even lay their heads. And so this is the example that we see Martha being the host, taking on the, the role of host, which is, a, which is Christ-like. What a, what a beautiful thing. Some of you have the gift of hospitality. My wife has the gift of hospitality, her ability to open our home to, to people and to welcome them in and make them feel at home there. It's a, it's, I mean, it is, it is a spiritual gift, the gift of hospitality, but it is something that we are all invited to practice. Jesus um, gives us uh, the example when he's sharing the, the last meal with his disciples. He takes on the role of host by being the one who, who raises the bread and gives thanks and breaks it and shares it with his disciples. He plays the role of host when he raises uh, the cup and, and, and blesses it and shares that with his disciples. And, and so this is, a, this is a beautiful thing that, that Martha is doing. She's playing host. And we don't know, is this, like, is Martha the oldest sister and, and there are parents who are gone? It, that's possible because it says that Martha welcomed them into her home, right? She took what was hers and was willing to leverage it for, for the sake of Jesus and his followers. Welcomed uh, Jesus, opened her home to him. In the role of host... There were things that Martha had to do to be able to host them well. Several years ago, several years ago now, uh, when, I was, when I was still um, youth director here, it was uh, Super Bowl Sunday, and it's just one of those Sundays that, I mean, every year we were like, do we fight this fight? Do we embrace it? Do we just cancel? We never wanted to cancel for the Super Bowl. And so I had this, br- I just thought this is a brilliant idea. It, it's, it's a way to you know, like meet our students where they are, give them the opportunity to watch the game, but also a way to empower um, my, my leaders and, and give them some like ownership in the fact that they, you know, like, hey, here's a way that you can serve your small group and, and, and love on them and meet them where they are. And so I tasked them, I was like, hey, find a place with your small group to go and watch the game. Like, that could be your house, your apartment, or you could reach out to the parent of one of the students in your, your small group but just find a place for them, you know, for them. Like, that's, that's what we're going to do that. And everybody's going to kind of split up, and we'll go and watch the game together. And, and, and we'll convene. We'll meet at the church, and, and then you can disperse and, you know, like, go where you're going to go. So we met at the church, and, and I'm, I'm so excited to hear, like, man, this, hey, this is where we're going. I'm going to have people to my house. We're going to go to the so-and-so's house. And we show up, and, and I was like, all right, where's, where's everybody going? Like, we're meeting with our leaders. And they were like, we, we don't nowhere. Like, we don't have a plan. And I was like, come on. Like, I'm a procrastinator. I'll own that 100%. But you've had, we- like, the Super Bowl doesn't sneak up on anybody. You know it's coming. No one, none of you, like, no one, no one has a plan. 
And, and, and we didn't have what we have now. Like, we couldn't just stream it, you know, and, and play it here in this space. And so I'm thinking, this is about to be a bust. And so I did the only thing that I knew to do. I, I called my wife, Piper. And I said, hey, um, how would you feel about having a few people over uh, for the Super Bowl? Like a few of the youth and some of the leaders. And she's like, yeah, that'd be great. How many are you thinking? I don't know, like... 45 or 50? <laughs> and she, like, silent. There was, a, there was a silence that felt like it was eternal. I mean, to the point where I wanted to be like, hello? Did I, did I lose you? Maybe. Maybe I lost you for good. I don't know. <clears throat> she said, yeah, bring them on. But you're going to need to stop at the store on the way and get a few things. <laughs> and, and so... We, we arrived, we descend upon my house, and I watched as my wife, like, pulled off, I mean, loaves and fish, like a miracle. Like, somehow, our few hundred square feet became enormous, and, and, I mean, we had people front to back in the room, enjoying food, enjoying fellowship, watching the Super Bowl. John, you might have been there. I don't remember if you were there, but, I mean, just like, it was, it was like, it was one of those moments where I stood back and thought, this is fantastic. But I wasn't the host, right? I wasn't the one who received the call that said, hey, can we just have a few people over? And, and maybe some of you who are parents or, or maybe you've experienced that. Maybe if you have roommates, they're like, hey, we're gonna, I'm just going to have a couple people over. And then you realize there's like 15 people descending upon your house. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, now you, you, you have to kick it into high gear because you are the one responsible for making sure all of these people are fed, for making sure all of these people you know, enjoy themselves, they're comfortable, they have a good time, whatever. Like, this was what Martha stepped into. Because in that culture, especially, like, you could not have had people into your home and not served them, not made them feel welcome, not provided for them. We, we talked last week about the honor-shame culture uh, that, that, that was the first century, right? Like, uh, especially in the first century of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. And for Martha to not have welcomed the family in, or, or to welcome Jesus and his followers in would have been, like, it would have been really shameful. And so she did exactly what she needed to do. And, and I think that's the first thing that, that we need to wrestle with, like, just out of the gate. And Sarah talked some about this, Ben talked about this. Like, to what degree have you welcomed Jesus into your home? I don't mean the place that you live physically, although... That, that could certainly be part of it. But to what degree have you welcomed Jesus into the home that is your heart, that is your life? Like, have you been willing to open the doors and say, hey, it's kind of a mess, didn't really have time to clean up, but, but you can come in. You're welcome to come in. And, and, and I'll tell you that for me, at a young age, I was convinced that I had to clean the place up first. And, and I don't even know where. I wasn't told that. I just assumed that that was how that worked. But I'm, praise God that I had a mentor in, in my young life leader who said, Vern, if you wait until you get your life all put together before you say yes to Jesus, it, it'll never happen. I'm so thankful that someone shared that truth with me. And so maybe you're a person who has said, who, who's like, yeah, I, I have invited Jesus in to the home of my heart. I have invited him to come in. 
and, and maybe you're in a place where you're like, but there's some rooms that Jesus isn't allowed to go into. Like, well, like when Piper prepared for that evening, what it meant was that everything that was any sort of clutter ended up in our bedroom. And that door was closed and no one even knew it existed. There were some things that were hidden away because we didn't want people to see the mess. And, and I wonder if that's the case with Jesus. Like if we said, yeah, come in, you're welcome in the home of my heart, but there's some things that I don't really, I'm going to keep locked away because I don't really want you uh, to see those. Jesus, as, as C.S. Lewis says, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he wants to come in and, and remodel the whole place. Like we want Jesus to come in and, you know, change a faucet here, maybe put some sconces on the wall, change a fixture or two, fresh coat of paint. But as C.S. Lewis says in, in his book, Mere Christianity, that's not what Jesus is content to do. He's going to start knocking down walls. Sometimes he will, he will raise that thing to the ground, like down to the studs, and then build it back up. Because what he intends is that it's a place for royalty to dwell. He's, he's building a palace in which he can live. So just out of the gate, like have, have you said, yes, Jesus, you're welcome in the home of my heart. And if you haven't, listen, today is, is a great day because today you have an opportunity to do that. Or to say, Jesus, you're here. Maybe, maybe let's, let's do go in that room that I've kind of kept closed off and maybe you can help me deal with some things in there. So Martha, being the host, opened her home uh, to Jesus and busies herself with the work of host. I mean, th this is an honorable thing for her to do. She had a sister, Mary. I love this. Who sat at the Lord's feet. I don't know if you have roommates like that, family members like that, but that somehow is their posture. You're, you're busy trying to get the place ready, and then there's someone who is just sitting, just seems like completely relaxed, completely oblivious to all the work that you are doing to try to, to be hospitable, and you have someone who is just sitting. What is it that allows a person to do that? In this case, what was it that allowed Mary? Because although it was, we read that it was Martha's home, Mary was connected to this family, so Mary's place should have been, culturally should have been, doing anything that was necessary to help her sister Martha prepare a place for Jesus and his disciples. Not just Jesus, right? Jesus and his disciples. Hey, uh, so there's 13 men coming into the house today. Um, they're probably going to be hungry. We need a lot more food than we have. Mary, I'm going to need you to do some work. We don't know where Lazarus was, but it would have been the role of Mary and Martha to, to be hospitable and to prepare uh, the space. But Mary is doing none of the busyness, none of the running around. Mary is seated at the feet of Jesus. What Martha is doing, we learn, is not inherently wrong. Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, 
don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? I love that Martha goes straight to the top. Like, she doesn't go to Mary. She goes straight to the top. Jesus will fix this and put that sister of mine in her place, which should not be at his feet, but helping me prepare the house. Don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. (laughs) Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. Notice that the way that Jesus responds is not to chastise Martha for playing host. It's not to chastise her for doing the work that was needed in that moment. But it's the fact that her worry over those things superseded the opportunity to sit at the feet of Jesus. Martha welcomed Jesus into her home, but then she left him. And and, and I wonder for many of us if, if that's kind of the tension that we feel like we live in when we consider, like, what is my faith worth to me? I said yes to Jesus, and I know that I know him, and I know that he knows me, but, but I, I can't seem to figure out where he is in all of this. Well, where did you leave him last? Now, we know that he's, he's with us. Like, there's never a space that we are that, that God is not. But if we're, if we're considering this relationship, this abiding relationship that we're invited into, Jesus paints this beautiful picture of it in John 15 and the, the, the parable of the vine and the branches. That we're meant to abide in that relationship. So if we think of it that way, like where did you last leave Jesus? Martha was willing to welcome him into her home, but then left him to busy herself with other things. What is incredibly significant about where Luke places this in his gospel account is that he follows what? The parable of what? We looked at it last week. The Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan who who served the the Jewish man who who was beaten and left for dead. The Good Samaritan who, who allowed himself to be drawn into the work of serving this man. Uh, who allowed himself to be drawn into the work of putting him on, this man on his donkey and carrying him uh, to a place where he could receive treatment, who, who allowed himself to be drawn into what, what it would cost to take care uh, of this man. He was working. He was, he was busy caring for others. He was, he, was, he was doing what was necessary to care for someone else. But immediately following this, because I think some of us, especially if you're a type A person, you're like, hey, Just tell me what I need to do. Like, what's the goal? Tell me what I need to do to get there, and I'm on it. I will do it. That's the way we we might begin to approach what discipleship looks like. It's all about the work. It's all about what is asked of us. Listen, I'll, I'll do what you ask. I'll stack chairs. I'll show up early Sunday morning. I'll come and help serve Thursday night dinner. I'll go and serve at the hospitality house. I'll go and work at Habitat for Humanity on Saturday. Like, I am your guy. I will do whatever you ask me to do. But so that we don't end up in this place where the work for Jesus becomes more important than the relationship with Jesus, Luke places this account immediately following the story of the the Good Samaritan 
where we see Martha so concerned about the work that needed to be done that she missed the opportunity to be with Jesus. And we see Mary seated at the feet of Jesus. We have to assume that Jesus was speaking, to assume that he was taking an opportunity to teach, to talk to his disciples. And where was Mary? Right there hanging on his every word. And even if he wasn't saying a word, Mary was content simply to be in his presence, to sit at his feet. And Jesus says to Martha, hey, you're worried about a lot of stuff and and it's not really all that important. Like those things aren't necessary, he says. Mary has chosen the one needful or the one necessary thing and I'm not gonna take it away from her. Martha took on the servant or the posture of a servant, excuse me. Martha took on the posture of a servant. Mary took on the posture of a disciple. And what is not insignificant when you consider the life of Mary is that the three times that Mary is mentioned in the Gospels, she is at the feet of Jesus. The three times that she is mentioned That's where we find her, at Jesus' feet. If you were to flip forward to John chapter 11, at the death of Lazarus. John 11, 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives uh, lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been, uh, who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus saw her weeping, and the, jo- the Jews who had come along with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and trouble. At the feet of Jesus, we see Mary learning. At the feet of Jesus, we see Mary broken, pouring her heart out. And then following this moment that John records in John chapter 12, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary at the feet of Jesus, learning Mary at the feet of Jesus pouring her heart out and Mary at the feet of Jesus worshiping. 
But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. A year's wages. Imagine if you were doing taxes right now, examining the past year and saying, I'm willing to give all of that up for this expensive perfume, not that I'm going to sell and and get a return on my investment, but that I'm going to break and anoint the feet of Jesus with He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Leave her alone because what she has done is beautiful to me. Learning at Jesus' feet, pouring our hearts out at Jesus' feet, worshiping at Jesus' feet. I wonder where we find ourselves this morning. Are we so busy taking on the role of servant that we miss the opportunity to take on the posture of a disciple? One who is content to prioritize, not to ignore the work, but to prioritize the work of sitting at the feet of Jesus, trusting that that is the place where our identity is formed, trusting that that is the place where we hold ourselves before the scrutiny of the world, trusting that that is the place where we, where we learn what it looks like and what it means to be a follower of Jesus, trusting that that, that is the place where we, are, where we are taught, where we are shaped, where we are formed, and that is the place from which we then go out to serve. Friends, I, I don't know what the distraction may be for you. For some of you, maybe it is busyness. From some, it might just be the fact that we live in a distracting world. And every day, there's information and there are voices and there are opinions and there are posts and there are stories and there are reels that we are allowing to just flood our conscious, consciousness, to flood our minds, to steal our time and attention. So, so maybe it's, it's learning to quiet some of those things and instead prioritizing the sitting at Jesus' feet, to learn, to open the scriptures, to pray, to pour your hearts out before him, and to worship. One of the things that Sarah does pretty regularly is that she'll send um, a, a song that she's been listening to, to Ben, to myself, to our, our Crossroads uh, worship team, to just, and, and, and I just imagine her in that, like, she's been sitting at the feet of Jesus, just worshiping, allowing that to wash over her, and wants to share that with others. What would it look like in your life to begin to prioritize sitting at the feet of Jesus, to prioritize that over the busyness? Not that the busyness isn't important. It's important to do the work that God has placed before us to do. It's one of the ways that we worship. It's one of the ways that we return thanks. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to use the gifts that you've given me to do the work that you've placed before me. Because in the hands of God, it is all kingdom work. But if we're not sitting first at the feet of Jesus, then we lose sight of what is most important. We lose sight of maybe why God has allowed you to be in this place in this season of your life. We lose sight of the fact that God has given you this work to do or that God has blessed you with these relationships with these people in your life. 
It's at the feet of Jesus that, we, that we, our, our priorities are ordered. It's at the feet of Jesus that we understand who we are in Him. It's at the feet of Jesus that we learn how to walk in His footsteps. It's in the feet of Jesus that we learn how to leverage the things that God has given us for the sake of the kingdom rather than just doing the work so that we can check a box and be busy people. So I want to invite you as we prepare to continue in worship. We're going we're gonna to have a time of worship and then I'm gonna, I'll invite Ben to come off the stage and invite Mary uh, and, and the kids to come up and we'll welcome them in in membership and then I'll offer, um, I'll offer our, our benediction. But, but I feel like we just create a space of, of worship first um, for, for us to do that. And again, I invite you to use the time and the space as the Lord leads you. To take advantage of an opportunity to examine and say, God, what is it that is keeping me from from sitting and being at your feet? What is it that's keeping me? Is it busyness? Or is it just distraction? What are the ways that Jesus might be calling you to abide first, seated at his feet, learning, listening, pouring your heart out, worshiping? Let's begin there. I'll have our our team lead us, and then um, we'll we'll welcome this beautiful family in. You can stand and worship. You can remain seated. You can spread out. You can come and and kneel before the altar. I'll be down front if you'd like to come uh, for prayer. Uh, let me pray for us and we'll worship together. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that as we examine your life, as we examine the scriptures, we, we never saw you in a hurry. And, and yet we as, as people have become so convinced of where we are needed, when we are needed, the things that we need to tend to that, that so many of us have hurry sickness. We hurry too much, so much so that we we miss out on opportunities to be at your feet. So I pray that you would use this time and space to deal with us in that. Show us the ways where we have allowed hurry and, and worry to distract us. Show us the ways that we have just allowed this world and the noise in it to distract us pray that you begin to reorient us so that the first thing that we choose, Jesus, is to be seated at your feet. And in that, you would shape us, make us like you as a people, as a church, that we may be willing to walk out into this world and invite others into the beautiful rhythm of life with you. It's in your great name we pray these things.